Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday will be the third Sunday after Pentecost in year C. Our Old Testament reading is going to be from 1 Kings chapter 19. It's going to be verse 9b, so the second part of the verse, through verse 21. The epistle text from Galatians chapter 5 will do verse 1, but then we skip ahead and do verses 13 to 25. And then the gospel text is from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. So as we start with our Old Testament reading from 1 Kings, we do pick up the first part of chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, although I guess we never get 9a, in proper 14 in year B. So basically last summer is when we saw that text, and that's about Elijah. Well, contextually, Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal, or Yahweh has defeated Baal, maybe more accurate, at Mount Carmel, where the 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah took up that competition, and they both had an altar, they both made a sacrifice on the altar, and whichever god sent down fire to consume the offering was to be seen as the true god. And Elijah wins, he calls on the people there, they help him to basically capture the 450 prophets of Baal, and then Elijah slaughters them and kills them all. At that point, word gets back to the wicked queen, Jezebel, and she sends a message to Elijah threatening to kill him, really more than threatening to kill him. She has taken an oath by the false gods that she worships that the same thing would be done to her if she had not killed him by the next day. So uh, I think it's fair to say it's more than just a threat. Um, But that causes Elijah to flee. He heads down to Beersheba, which is the southernmost city in uh, the the kingdom of Judah. And from there, after he, well, he lies down thinking he's about to die. He gets strengthened by God as God sends him an angel. The the strength of the food that he receives allows him to go on a 40-day journey. Uh, strengthens him for 40 days, 40 nights, as he heads down to Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, down in the Sinai Peninsula. And so when he heads down there, that's going to bring us to the text that we have for the weekend. So let me go ahead. Let's. I'm going to read the first paragraph, 9b through 18, as 19 through 21 are going to jump to a, sl- a slightly different subject. We'll just phrase it that way for now. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive there you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So our text again begins within that context. Elijah uh, has fled from Jezebel's attempt to kill him. He has been in hiding, thinking he was about to die. God has strengthened him, and yet as he has made the journey down to Horeb, or Mount Sinai, just as God spoke to Moses at Sinai, God is going to speak now to Elijah at Sinai. Well, Elijah, his mood doesn't seem to have much improved, despite that strengthening from the Lord. And so God speaks to him in the first part of our text, 9b. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's like it was with Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where he asked Adam where he was. It's not that the Lord does not know, But the Lord was offering Adam the invitation to step forward, take accountability for his sins. But he didn't. Anyway, as we look at Elijah then here in 1 Kings, God's question, again, God knows the answer. Elijah is despairing of the work that God has given him to do despairing of what he has seen. And that's really going to see that play out here with what the Lord is about to do with him, uh, a section that might normally be confusing, hopefully will become clear in this, uh, this whole thing about the, the fire and the, the, the earthquake and the wind and the still small voice, I think, as it's commonly referred to. Elijah is depressed. Elijah believes that he alone is still following Yahweh, And Elijah is despairing of the fact that God is not working the way that Elijah thinks God should be working. Remember again Mount Carmel, the fire that came down and consumed the entire offering that Elijah had made before the Lord. And then you get the victory over over the prophets of Baal that Elijah is able to slaughter 450 of them. That should be a, a good day for Israel. It should be a good day for the people of God. And instead, the royal decree, so the decree that comes from the king and the queen, technically came from the queen, the royal decree is for his death. And then crickets. God does not respond. God does not pour down fire upon Jezebel. Elijah does not understand. And so his response to God here is, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, which is again the Hebrew word for armies. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I only am left, they seek my life. So you can see his despair in this. He claims that he has been jealous 
for God. In a way, I think we can see that, again, with the whole contest on Mount Carmel that, that does speak to that, that he has not sought to let the false prophet's words stand, but has sought to fight for Yahweh, to fight for the true faith, to be part of Israel's life. And yet the Israelites have forsaken God. They have torn down his altars. They have rejected him. They have rebelled against him. They have built altars to new gods, false gods, and they have even killed his prophets. That's certainly true. Jezebel has killed many of them. However, what he says next, that only he is left, is not true. Back in chapter 18, verse 13, Elijah had met Obadiah, it's also a prophet, and Obadiah had shared with him that he had hid a hundred prophets of the Lord from the king and queen. So Elijah, exaggerating, perhaps, in his despair, or maybe he thinks that Jezebel has also managed to find them by this point and killed them as well, but it's, not, it's simply not true that only he is left, not just of the prophets, but of the people as well, which is going to be what Yahweh will point out to him in, at the end of the text here in verse 18, that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God instructs him to go stand on the mount before him. So he's in a cave at Horeb, the mountain, or again, Sinai, the mountain. So go outside, leave the cave. And as he does, there's a strong wind that tears the mountain, breaks the rocks in pieces. Be quite the thing to see, right? You can imagine standing there and seeing that and, and the panic, the fear that might overcome you. And then after that wind, there's an earthquake. So it's going to cause more destruction, more rumbling. And again, you can imagine the fear that might overwhelm you, thinking that you're up on this mountain and it's shaking. And then after that, there's a fire, which is not described as much. I mean, we can picture probably the first two better, but what kind of fire passes by? We're not told. We're just simply told that the Lord is not in any of these. Yahweh is not in these things. And then after that, there is the sound of a low whisper. And Elijah hears it. Now he goes out, he covers his face in his cloak, so he can't see. Why does he do that? This would get back to what God told Moses on the same mountain. Back in Exodus, chapter 33, verse 20. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so it is here, Elijah recognizing from inside the cave that Yahweh is in that whisper, that low voice, that soft voice, quiet voice. Yahweh is in it. And so by going out to meet Yahweh at the entrance of the cave, Elijah recognizes he must hide himself from Yahweh's presence. And so that's what he does with the cloak. And then verses 13b 
through the end of verse 14 is a repeat of what we've already had in the text. I mean, word for word in English here, a repeat of the initial conversation from 9b and 10. As God asks, "Where? what are you doing here? And Elijah gives him his spiel, his routine there, all over again. So Elijah still despairing, even though he's in the presence of Yahweh himself directly right now. And so then Yahweh speaks. Yahweh said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That would be from Horeb. We don't know exactly where the mountain known as Sinai is. It's in the Sinai Peninsula. It's named after it. But is it down at the southernmost tip of that? Is it north of there somewhere? I think we tend to argue it's probably somewhere central in it, but this could make it anywhere from a good 400 to 500 mile journey to go from Horeb up to Damascus, which is north-northeast directionally. You'd have to go through the promised land of Israel, and then you would have to pass by the Sea of Canareth, or the Sea of Galilee, as it's called in the New Testament, after the Jordan River there, north of the Jordan. And after that point, you kind of turn to the northeast, and that's where you would find Damascus, again, eventually, after traveling quite a ways. The thing about this, as he returns to Damascus, what does he have to pass? He has to pass through the lands of Judah and Israel. He has to pass through Jerusalem and Samaria. Not those two cities directly, but you get the picture. He has to pass through the lands of the people he fears. He has fled. He's fled from his ministry. He has fled from what the Lord has given him to do at this point, fearing for his own life, and now Yahweh is sending him back. In fact, Elijah won't make it to Damascus because as he gets back into the heart of the land, he gets back to work. He gets back to doing the work that the Lord has given to him to do. And Elisha will be with him, as we'll see here at the end of the the text today. Now, as he arrives in Damascus, again, he himself doesn't get there. He's to anoint Hazael king over Syria and then Jehu over Israel. It will be Elisha and his ministry that ends up being the one to do this. So in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is taken up into heaven without dying one of just the two people we know of, Enoch being the first back in Genesis chapter 5, that he walked with God and then he walked no more. Hazael will become king over Syria in 2 Kings chapter 8 and Jehu over Israel in 2 Kings chapter 9. And Elisha really does not anoint either of these men himself. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, Hazael himself not anointed Hazael is not the king, but he comes as the king of Syria had sent him to Elisha because the king was sick to ask if he would recover and get well because Elisha at the start of chapter 8 has reached Damascus. And so they hear about the word, the man of God who's there. And so he seeks him out. And Hazael is the messenger who goes to see whether the king will recover or not. And Elisha informs him that the king will recover and yet the king will not live because Hazael is going to kill him. Hazael is going to take the throne and Elisha stares at him to the point of awkwardness, uh, to the point where Hazael is embarrassed by it and basically wants to know why and Elisha mourns, telling Hazael 
what kind of evil things Hazael is going to end up doing. So there's not an anointing that takes place in 2 Kings chapter 8. However, by the end of the chapter, Hazael has killed the king of Syria and is now reigning in his place. Likewise, Jehu, Jehu's going to be set up to, to topple a family tree that Ahab has rejected the Lord and not walked in his ways, and Ahab's house is going to be removed from leadership over Israel. That idea can be seen First Kings chapter 21 at the end of the chapter, Second Kings chapter 9 uh, around verse 9, uh, those sorts of texts. So Jehu is going to be the one that gets to do that, and he is anointed not by Elisha, uh, but Elisha will pick a one of the sons of the prophets, of which there were many, so um, we might think of them almost like prophets in training, uh, but they were probably more full-fledged than that. And there are many. We only think of the major prophets that we know of from the Bible, like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah, or even the minor prophets um, of Hosea or Amos and so forth. But nonetheless, there were others that were faithful to the Lord. Again, Obadiah saying that he had hidden a hundred prophets of God. And so Elisha picks one of these guys and sends him to be the one who anoints Jehu as the king over Israel. So this does happen. Maybe the signal here in this section from verse 15 onward as God calls Elijah back into the ministry is the idea that he's sending him back, but he's also about to remove him, and that ultimately the ministry isn't about Elijah. It's about what God is doing. And so Elijah, the prophet, is sent to do these things, and even though Elijah himself will not be the one to do them, God still makes them happen. In fact, even though Elisha himself will not be the one to do them, God still makes them happen because this is God's will. This is God's plan. This is God's kingdom. And all of that is really quite good news for us. And I think that's going to probably mirror the gospel text better than the, than the next section. The, the direct connection, I think, that most people will make between the Old Testament reading and the gospel this weekend is going to be that Elisha asks to go back to his father and mother and kiss them before he follows. There's a similar request, in fact, three similar requests made of Jesus in the gospel reading. He denies all of them, whereas Elijah permitted Elisha, and that'll cause confusion. We'll cover that here in a little bit. But I, again, I think the better connection between the two texts is the idea that it's not about us. It's not up to us. The fact is God is in control. And this is a tremendously good thing. God's judgment is spoken in verse 17. The one who escapes Hazael, so that the king of Syria won't kill uh, Jehu of Israel will kill, and if they escape from Jehu as well, then Elisha would put them down, right? because Elisha is the prophet of God, speaking for God. God's If it's God's judgment, it's going to happen, is essentially the picture in that. However, verse 18, there's a remnant. There will be 7,000 that the Lord leaves in Israel who have not bowed to Baal, who have not kissed him. That's a reference to intimacy, obviously, but the picture here that God often does in the Old Testament describing himself as the husband and Israel, his people, as 
as the bride and that Israel is frequently then described as being a whore or being adulterous and chasing after all these false gods. And that's what we see here with this idea of Baal. You can't kiss Baal. Baal is non-existent, so you can't kiss him. I guess, however, I mean, his statues, technically, you could kiss a statue. I don't know if they practice that or not, but again, the the metaphor here, the picture, uh, or analogy, however you want to phrase it, that is, that's understandable. Israel has committed adultery by chasing after Baal rather than worshiping Yahweh. That's what's being brought across. All right, so before we move into this whole thing now with Elisha, I did say I wanted to cover this conversation about the mountains being torn by the winds, the earthquake, the fire, and then the low whisper, the still small voice. As the King James Version has probably prominently burned into our minds. Uh, Funny how the, the King James text, their translations often stick with us, even though many of us don't really ever read the King James. NIV, ESV, a lot more familiar, I think, to Lutherans today. So what's going on here? God is not in the first three, but he's in the whisper or the voice. The picture of this is that God can do these mighty acts. In fact, in this context, God did these things. The the wind came from him. The earthquake came from him. The fire came from him. But think about these things. So you have the, the picture of a wind And I'm just going to look at Exodus, continuing to connect to Sinai and Moses uh, from the Exodus account here. You've got the wind in the book of Exodus. So you have the wind that the Lord uses to bring uh, the locusts upon the land of Egypt for the plague of locusts. You have then, uh, that's Exodus 10, in Exodus 14 and 15, you have the, the wind that the Lord uses upon the Red Sea in order to part the Red Sea that the people of Israel can cross, but then also close the Red Sea as the wind would cease, and the army of Egypt is drowned. So the Lord working through wind as a marvelous thing in his creation, in his power. And we can think in the New Testament, too, of Jesus calming the storm. The wind and the waves obey him, is what amazes the disciples. So a very similar thing. Earthquakes. How does the Lord work through earthquakes? Interestingly, in ESV at least, this is the first time the word earthquake appears in the English Bible. 1 Kings chapter 19, which is a good chunk in. And it's not a common word for the Old Testament. But the earthquake is going to commonly be associated with the appearance of the Lord. And this does happen when God appears on Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, that the earth uh, shakes and the people tremble from it. So that's a connection to God's appearance You have, uh, again, connecting to the New Testament, the death of Christ on the cross, that the earth shook. There was an earthquake at that time. And I believe also then the one that accompanied the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. And then there are conversations about earthquakes being a sign of the end of the world from Jesus. And indeed, Revelation will use earthquakes both in judgment, but also, again, as a sign of God's presence, his appearance. And so we can see the, the power of the Lord through earthquakes in Scripture, certainly. And then you have fire, and that's an easy one for Exodus to connect, the, the pillar of fire by night that the Lord used to lead his people Israel, or the fire in the burning bush as the Lord called Moses there on, again, Horeb, Sinai. So we, we see these various sorts of pictures of these things. The Lord works through these things. The Lord is in these things. 
but not here. So the Lord can do these mighty acts. The Lord can do these miraculous signs, which is what Elijah wanted. He wanted one of these miraculous signs to pour out upon Jezebel to deliver him, save him, so that he could go about easy work for God. And instead, where is God? He's in the still small voice. He's in the low whisper. God can do mighty works, but his normal means of acting is through his word. And thanks be to God for that. I mean, talk about a New Testament truth that we delight in as Christians, right? We're, we're people who, who know that God gives us his means of grace through word and sacrament. That is through the, the word of God, the Bible, spoken, proclaimed, preached, uh, and also uh, read. But the word of God then connected to water for baptism. The word of God connected to bread and wine for the Lord's Supper that these great mysteries of our faith are accomplished through simple and ordinary things. And that the Lord creates faith in us by his word, whether it's, again, through baptism, the word connected with the water, or if it's through the Holy Spirit's work, the, the preaching, the hearing of the good news, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing. God will work ordinarily, normally, through normal means, through his word, through something that doesn't come across as having power, but comes across in the view of the world as being a thing of weakness. But this gets you to that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 introduction section where Paul talks about how uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And by both of those things, he's referring to the cross of Jesus Christ, that the cross of Christ accomplished for us what no strength of man could do, so we could muster our armies as much as we want. We cannot save ourselves, and yet Christ's death on the cross has accomplished for us that very thing that we could not do. It's it's wiser than us, even though it would be it's looked at as being foolishness to us that that God would die. That doesn't make sense, and yet none of our wisdom could achieve our own salvation. We couldn't figure out how to get ourselves right with the Lord, but he did. He did it by the blood of his son on the cross. So we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. That's what's happening here. That's what Elijah is is learning from the Lord, assuming that he learns from this. Elijah is learning that God does not always act the way that we want him to. God does not always act with great power in this world, again, the way that we think power works. But that the Lord works through his word, that the Lord is faithful to his promises, that the Lord can be trusted, and that the Lord does save his remnant, which is verse 18, There would be a remnant in Israel, and that's us. So this is good news, again, very good news for each and every one of us. Then we get to the last paragraph of the Old Testament text. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. 
Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So Elijah does what God has given him to do. And he goes and he, he meets Elisha, who will be his successor in the role of being prophet to the Lord. Now, just quickly, the, the names of Elijah and Elisha being here together in the text. The Ia ending is that first syllable of the divine name Yahweh. Um, El is the Hebrew word for God. And when you add that kind of an E, it's a, it shows up as an I in English, but uh, make an E sound most often. It can make an I sound in, in Hebrew as well. But when you add that as a suffix to a word, uh, it's oftentimes going to be that uh, possessive. So this is my God. So Eli, my God, Yah, Yahweh is my God, is what Elijah's name means. And Elisha has that same my God uh, start to it, the Eli. And then the Sha comes from the Hebrew verb Yasha, which is to save. So my God saves is Elisha's name. So Elijah, my God is Yahweh. Elisha, my God saves. Anyway, Elijah goes to meet him. He finds Elisha plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, so 24 oxen. That's a a large group because they plow in pairs, typically. This probably tells us that Elisha is from a well-to-do family. That's a lot of livestock. That's a lot of work, working beasts, beasts of burden. And he passes by him and casts his cloak upon him. I don't know if this is a typical sign of secession and the idea that Elisha would have understood it or if this is Elijah doing almost the bare minimum here kind of disgruntledly there does seem to be some of that going on for Elijah in this paragraph that he's not all that thrilled about the idea like he's going back into the ministry he's not all that thrilled about that to be going back to Jerusalem um, and to Samaria and now he's picking the guy that's going to come after him which means his time is going to be short so Elijah, again, maybe not in the best place in terms of his mood as he go into this section either. And so he, he casts his cloak on him, and then he just keeps going, just keeps walking. And he leaves it to Elisha to put the pieces together, and Elisha does. Uh, Elisha chases him down and requests permission to go and kiss his father and mother and then follow him. So Elisha gets it, and we don't even know if he knew who Elijah was. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord has made this thing known to him already. Perhaps God paved the way for this, and that's why it makes sense to Elisha. We don't know. 
there's there's a lot of intrigue in this that there's just not enough detail for us to really speak to. But Elijah will give Elisha permission to do this, in a sense, by saying, go back again, what have I done to you? So the go back again is the permission. The what have I done to you part, again, uh, spoken maybe dejectedly, but perhaps the positive way to look at it would be the idea that it's not really Elijah that's doing it, but it's God who is doing this thing. I'm not sure if Elijah is getting to that point here yet or not, but it is going to be the truth. It will be the Lord who has made Elisha the prophet, and in fact, he has told Elijah this already. So Elisha does what he, he requested, goes back to his family, but in doing so, he takes those oxen, the 24 of them, and he kills them. He sacrifices them, so it makes an offering to the Lord. He boils their flesh, so he cooks part of the animals. With the yolks is not to suggest that like he made this pot of water to, to boil and then put the animal meat in there and then also put the wood in there. He used the wood to burn, to heat this, to make that boil. So he takes the yokes, the wooden yokes, the harnesses that were over their, their, their shoulders to connect the pairs and also drive the animal. He uses those then to cook the animal. And he throws a feast. He gives it to the people to eat. Who the people are, we don't know. Uh, they could be the inhabitants of that place. They could be um, his household. Again, it sounds like he's probably coming from a wealthier family that they had so many oxen. So it could be that the family and all of their servants and so forth are, are eating. Either way, however, the meal is finished and he goes after Elijah and we, he will spend the next few chapters uh, as Elijah's assistant helper in the ministry as he learns from him and then ultimately uh, receives the double portion of his spirit in Second Kings chapter 2 to continue on the prophetic ministry of Yahweh in this world. As we come now then to our epistle text from Galatians chapter 5, we have verse 1, and we skip over some things about circumcision and get back to verse 13 through 25 for our reading. So verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. The good Lutheran question is important on this. What does this mean? I think the danger for the American Christian church is that we have the American idea of freedom in our mind when we read that word freedom, and it's hard to shake that word. So we think of freedom as Americans in the context of the Constitution and its Bill of Rights that we have been given uh, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not Christian. <laughs> Can I just flat out say it that plainly? Um, rights is not something that the New Testament or Old Testament, is all that concerned about. In fact, if, if rights is there, typically the understanding of the Christian is not that we are going to live for the self, which is what we're going to see in this section. We're not to live for ourselves; we're to love our neighbor. And so if, if there were such a thing as rights, then the Christian way of doing things would be seeking to lay down my rights in order to serve the people around me. 
We don't have a right to life. God granted us life. It is a gift. And every single moment that we get, we rejoice, we thank him for. But if this moment of life ends, I mean, this life's a blink of an eye in comparison to eternity. When this life ends, what has Paul said? To live is Christ, which means to serve him. To die is gain. To think of of life as a right doesn't look at death as gain. It looks at life as something to be held on to at all costs, which, I mean, we've seen that in the pandemic over the last few years here, starting in 2020, now it's 2022. There are still people who haven't left their homes because they're focused on the right to life. They don't want the life to be taken from them, but in doing so, they haven't lived for Christ. That was the danger we all faced when the government shut things down and told us we couldn't even leave our homes for two weeks. It's hard to serve your neighbor in that kind of a context. Instead, we were able to focus on serving ourselves, and we allowed fear to drive us to serve the self rather than to serve the other. We don't have a a right to happiness. The pursuit of happiness is not the aim of the Christian. We are told we will suffer, and that suffering is actually a gift. First Peter speaks that way a few times from God. And then persecution, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, is promised to us, and Jesus says that we're blessed for it. Romans 5 talks about how suffering leads to endurance and character and hope. How many of you want to have hope? The Christian is not about America's freedom. So what does this word freedom in Christ mean? Well, look at it. You have been set free from the yoke of slavery. What slavery were we under before Christ set us free? We were under the slavery of sin and the slavery of death. Christ has set us free from these things. We're still not free the way that we think of free. I mean, look at the next few phrases in the the epistle reading this weekend. Stand firm. That's a command. Do not submit. That's a command. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's a command. Through love, serve one another. That's a command. Walk by the Spirit. That's a command. Not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a command. I mean, that's just six. And then we're going to get a whole list of stuff we're not supposed to do and a whole list of stuff we are supposed to do. That's not the way America's view of freedom works. The picture of scripture ultimately ends up being that you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ. And Paul will often call himself a slave of Christ even as he introduces his letters. Although English translators prefer to use the word servant because it doesn't sound as harsh to our American ear. No, Christ's freedom is not this. Christ's freedom is that you have been set free from the love of self You have been set free to love Christ and your neighbor. That's the purpose Jesus gives to our life. We are not here to love ourselves. I mean, he says this in 
Matthew's gospel. He says it in Luke's gospel. Uh, When he's asked what the greatest commandment is, his response is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we've been given to do. It's a simple summary of the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 3 are about loving God. 4 through 10 are about loving your neighbor. Do these things. That doesn't sound like freedom, again, the way that we would phrase it. We are slaves of Christ to serve our neighbor and to serve God each and every day. So Christ has set us free, yes. And so now we have what we call Christian freedom, which again is to no longer be bound by the devil, to no longer be stuck trying to always gratify the desires of the sinful flesh, which is a a common statement here in the text of Galatians 5. Stand firm. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So those two really do go back with each other well. They're they're hand in hand, that we would stand firm in our faith. We would stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ rather than return to the slavery of the self. They're opposites. If you're standing firm in Christ, you're not returning to the yoke of slavery of self. If you're returning to the yoke of slavery of self, you're not standing firm in Christ. And we skip over again a whole section about circumcision and the attempt to use the law to save oneself, which is not possible. And we come to verse 13, and I'll do 13 through 15 here next. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You were called to freedom. And again, that's not that freedom, not that kind of freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, we don't use that freedom to just do whatever we want. Because if you use your freedom freedom in Jesus to do whatever you want, what are you doing? You're enslaving yourself to your sinful desires again. You're letting yourself be led by that sinful heart, that sinful nature that still dwells within you, still seeks to master over you as God warned Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and Cain failed to realize. And thus it led to his destruction. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So I am free in Christ. I can do, I can live this life how I choose. I am not bound by the law. The law is not master over me. Christ is. And yet, what has Christ laid before me? Serve my neighbor. Serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to get literal about one word there, it would be that word love. So love God, love your neighbor. This quote is, by the way, from Leviticus chapter 19. I uh, had fun sharing that idea in Bible class not not long ago, um, asking people, um, where do we see the command to love one another, to love your neighbor? Where do we first see that command in Scripture? It doesn't show up. Like, those words don't show up until you get to Leviticus. And that's the last place I think people would expect 
to see that phrase, right? That's not the way we think about Leviticus. Leviticus is, in its own way, it's a great book, and we should thank the Lord that it's there, and we should know what's in it, uh, because it's his word, and he saw fit to give it to us. Um, probably the best way to see Leviticus is to read those first seven or eight chapters, to see all the, the instructions about the sacrifices you're supposed to make, uh, in order to have some kind of even limited forgiveness, because that will make us all the more thankful for what Christ has done, that his sacrifice is one and for all. You don't have to do all of these sacrifices to achieve your salvation. Very much fits the picture of Galatians. But that Christ has already done it. Christ has already achieved it for you. And Leviticus heightens our our appreciation of that very idea. And it gets you to look at the the architecture of your church in a different way is you go to church on Sunday morning and you see the altar up front in the sanctuary and then above that altar you see the cross. The Old Testament sacrificial system is the altar but the New Testament sacrificial system if you want to call it that is the cross. It's Jesus once and for all. The cross trumps the altar in that way and it's fantastic. And that's a New Testament way of seeing the book of Leviticus in a very good way. Anyway, um, we're not in Leviticus, we're in Galatians. So let's get back to our text that we have at hand. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is what we have been set free to do. We have not been set free to just do whatever we want. We have, I guess technically we have permission to go about doing whatever we want. This is what I think Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, where he said, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so the, those quotes he was making of all things are lawful, kind of the picture that the church was saying, but Paul was reminding them, okay, well, maybe you can do anything you want, but those things don't help other people. Those things that you want to do, they're not building anybody else up. You're just serving yourself, and this is not good. And that's what we see here in our text today as well. So if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another, is our last part of the paragraph that we had. Uh, A warning. I mean, what does serving the self cause us to do to each other? It causes us to turn on one another. Instead of loving one another, we see each other as objects that we can be served by. So instead of seeing my wife as a person created by God that I am called to serve, that I am called to sacrifice and give all of myself, Ephesians 5, in order for her good, I start to see my wife as an object to bring me happiness, an object to to fit my lusts or, or whatever it might be. And this is what often leads to divorce in America, and you hear it so many times. I just don't love them anymore. And what's really meant by that phrase is, they just don't make me happy anymore. Sacrificing and serving them got too hard. They weren't doing enough for me. And so when you turn the other person, when you turn the neighbor that you're supposed to serve into an object for your own gratification, you're biting them, you're devouring them, you're going going to harm them instead of help them. And if you're doing that, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. The warning is, as you do that, they're doing that as well, and it's going to harm you too. This goes both ways. 
So then Paul counsels in 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have verse 25 left, but it's its own paragraph in ESV, so let's come back to it here in the end. Walk by the Spirit, not gratify the desires of the flesh. These two things are set against each other. We've been talking about it already that way. Uh, In the episode today, verse 17 continues that. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of your sinful nature seek to serve themselves. This is the way it's been ever since creation. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them not to care for themselves. Adam's purpose is to care for creation. And as part of that creation, that's his, his wife as well. He is to care for Eve. Eve's purpose is not to care for Eve but to care for creation, helping her husband do that, and also care for her husband, for Adam, as part of God's creation. We are to care for all that is not me. That's the way God created us. And in sin, okay, hang on, backing up. So they didn't even recognize, at the end of Genesis 2, they didn't even recognize their nakedness. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. When you get to this the sin in Genesis 3 where Satan tricks them into thinking that they can be wise like God is wise, that they can know all things good and evil. They already knew all things good because they knew God. They just didn't know the evil. Afterwards, immediately they recognize that they're naked. Instead of looking out at the creation they were called to serve, they looked down at themselves. Um, Sometimes I've heard people describe sin as navel-gazing, looking at your own belly. And there's truth to that. It's turning inward, is the, the famous way I think Luther and many of the Reformers liked to talk about our sin. It turns us in on ourselves, whereas we have been called to turn outward. And so the work of the Spirit is to love the neighbor. The desire of the flesh is to love the self. And so, yes, they are opposed to each other. They are against each other. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This goes back to what we had last week in the end of chapter 3, start of chapter 4, the idea of being under the guardian in our father's household, uh, that the father would have his son raised by a basically a, a mentor, a guide, um, again, a guardian, and that at a certain time, fixed by the father, the, the son would be of age to take over the family business and would no longer be under the guardian. It's not to say the guardian's gone, but this is the picture here. We were under the guardian of the law until Christ came. Christ's appearance, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, was the set time appointed by the father. We are now 
uh, through faith in Christ, we are no longer under the law. It's not to say the law is gone. The law is still good. Um, just again, as the, the man who's been raised all his life by his guardian probably isn't going to cast his guardian off. Not like get rid of him kind of thing. But instead would then, as the master of the house, would seek to care for that guardian. Well, maybe his name's John. He's going to seek to care for John for the rest of John's life because he loves him. And so it is with the law of God. It's not that the law of God was bad. It was our own failure to keep it. But Jesus has set us free. And so now the law we can see the law is the good that it really was. I, I love to do this illustration. Real simple. Think of the Ten Commandments. Imagine two cities. Imagine one city where everyone kills each other whenever they want. Um, no one's faithful to their spouses. People just sleep around as much as they'd like to do. People take whatever they want, whenever they want. And then imagine a city where everyone is faithful to their spouse. Murder never happens. No one ever kills each other. No one ever even hates each other. And no one steals what belongs to another. Which of those two cities would you like to live in? (laughs) It's a pretty simple answer, right? Um, those of us who are not addicted to our own self-gratification, we're going to pick the city where the Ten Commandments are being kept. God's law is not bad. It is good. And so the Christian, now that we are under Christ, we are free in Christ, we are no longer under the guardian of the law, we don't just throw the law away as no longer of any use or value, but the law has its place as the law continues to be able to show us how we can love and serve our neighbor. And that's what then the rest of the text is about. Verse 19 through 21 is going to give you this list of of sins, the works of the flesh. And really, they're self-serving. Sexual immorality does not love my neighbor. It loves me uh, and specific parts of me. Impurity does not love my neighbor. It's my own way and whatever the impurity is of, of pleasing myself. I... I appreciate the word sensuality here. I think we in English often sexualize that one. And that's fair. I mean, it does often get used that way. But we already have the sexual immorality. So what's what's sensuality getting at? Senses. Right? We talk about having five senses. Sight, taste, touch, hearing, and smell. Sensuality is the drive to please one's senses. So the the sexual side of that certainly comes in. You think of of touch and you think of sight. Uh, Those things very much so connected. And the other ones can be too. But this is all things. So like if if pleasing to your eyes is to to sit in your house and and binge watch a TV show for your entire weekend rather than spend your weekend serving your neighbor, like you've gratified the flesh. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things build up. Idolatry is to worship false gods or, or really put anything beyond Christ as more important to ourselves. So money, that's serving the self. You can even make family more important than God. You can turn them into an idol, and that's, again, serving the self. Enmity, strife, so getting into hatred, jealousy, those sorts of things, uh, those are self-serving as well. When I hold a grudge against my neighbor, I'm not forgiving my neighbor I'm only harming them in doing so. 
and I, I seek revenge for myself. I think that's going to make me feel good. And, and sometimes it might even. Sometimes your revenge may feel good. But who are you serving? You're not serving your neighbor. And so this list just continues in that way. All these things, they're self-serving. So Paul warns them, as he's warned them before, that these people will not enter the inherit, will not inherit, they will not enter the kingdom of God. That's not to say that a sinner doesn't make it into paradise. If so, paradise would be empty except for God himself and Enoch and Elijah because he's already taken them. That's not the case. We know Christ on the cross has freed us from our sins. This is the picture of that person who chooses to not stand firm in Christ and does indeed submit themselves again to the yoke of slavery. So from verse 1, and they do that willfully. It's a rejection of Christ. It's a rejection of his forgiveness, choosing to live in our own self-gratification rather than to be a child of God who serves God as part of the family business. The opposite of this is going to be the fruits of the Spirit as we have Well, God named them that, right? The fruit of the Spirit is. Here in verses 22 and 23, there are nine of these things. And these are not going to be self-serving, but they're going to be serving the neighbor. They'll be serving others. Many of you have these nine memorized. This is good. There are children in the songs meant to help aid in the memory of these things. But just to run through them quickly, love is the agape love of God that we're talking about. Not romance, right? That ends up being self-serving. doesn't have to be, but usually is in our lustful way of living today. The agape love of God is the unconditional love of another person. Unconditional. It doesn't matter what they do, what they say, what they look like, any of that. You love them no matter what. That is not self-serving. That's self-sacrificing. It gives of yourself to care for another. Joy is not just a happiness, uh, but joy is to treasure something. And so literally, treasuring something is not self-serving because you're, you are valuing something else. And so we, can, we certainly focus our joy on Christ. He is our joy. He is our treasure. But we are taught to have this kind of a, a way of looking at others as well. Again, they are children of God or the very least creatures of God if they're not Christians, uh, we're taught to see them differently than the world teaches us to see them. Today, the world will tell you to look at a person and see their skin color, um, see their various kinds of status, uh, their various identities that the world clings to. But that doesn't teach us to actually love them. It teaches us to see the division it teaches us to encourage the division, encourage the divide, the, the hatred that is so overwhelmingly all around us. And it doesn't teach us to actually love the neighbor because the most loving thing to do is to see them as Christ sees them, as a person who he has created, whom he has redeemed by his own most precious blood, and who he wants to have in his paradise. And if you can't get past the identity stuff that the world wants to focus on, you don't get to that. Peace, uh, this is reconciliation with God. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's what he's done for us. And so then we live at peace with one another. We're reconciled to each other. Patience, 
Um, <laughs> patience is truly a virtue. It's a gift um, that is not easily had in this world. It's, it's hard to find. But it's the one who is willing to bear with, again, unconditionally, the people of this world who sin against us. Kindness, so the way we treat others. Goodness, again, the way we treat others in that too. We do good things. We, we do the Lord's bidding. Faithfulness, this is connected to both. I think we could go both ways. Faithfulness to God, that we would that we would trust in him in all things, and trust in him for salvation, but also faithfulness to the neighbor, uh, that we would serve them in our various vocations. Uh, gentleness, First uh, Peter chapter 3 talks about that, that we would always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us, but do so with gentleness and respect. So instead of a harshness, instead of a meanness, the Christian is rather meek, actually, although that's not the word here. Uh, self-control is the last one. So instead of giving in to the gratification of our, our fleshly desires, uh, we are self-controlled. Uh, we stand firm in our faith in Christ, and we seek to do what he has given us to do. So all who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. With Christ, our sins are crucified. In our baptisms, we are buried with Christ into his death, that we also then are raised with him in his resurrection. We are united with him. Our passions, the desires of this flesh, are not to be listened to. Opposite, again, of what you usually hear from the world, right? Just follow your heart, sweetie. That leads to damnation. Um, We crucify the heart's desires, and we have to, in self-control, over time, teach our heart to trust in Christ. And that happens, I think Colossians 3.16 is probably the best for that, and 17, uh, starting with the idea of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let Christ transform your heart and your mind. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That goes back really the same thing about standing firm and not submitting to the yoke of slavery. You've been set free. The Spirit has made you free. The Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit has made you alive. So, um, yeah, do that. <laughs> Live that. Love your neighbor. Love God. And, and don't seek to please the self. Because that is then to not walk in line with the Spirit, but to stray away. Ooh, I've already run over time. So Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62 in five minutes. Let me just go ahead and give you the context. So we've got the death of Christ. He is foretold to his disciples. Then he was transfigured on the mountain, which primary theme was, listen to him. He is my son. And so he told them again about his upcoming death and resurrection, and they still didn't listen. They start arguing about who is the greatest. And then they complain that there was someone casting out demons that was not traveling with them, but they were doing it in Jesus' name. That's the context that leads to our reading for the weekend. I'm going to read all of it in one. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I follow you, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, so the first paragraph, verses 51 to 56, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is seen as the turning point in the gospel, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus has now focused himself on what we call the travel narrative, that he's going to go to Jerusalem where he's going to offer himself up and die. The set the face language is actually typically through the prophet's language of judgment. So you can see it, 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 17, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 7, Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 2 are all good reference points for this phrasing. Basically, set your face against is God going, he's, he's looking at them, and because they're sinners, he's going to judge them. And there is some of that, right? Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and he speaks the woes against the Pharisees and the scribes, but Ultimately, not only is his setting his face to Jerusalem about judgment, it is also about his plan of salvation, that he's going to go to the cross where the judgment of God will fall upon him instead of upon us, that Christ will set us free, as Galatians 5 started out, free from our sins, free from death, free from the devil, thanks be to God. So uh, they're going to go to a village in Samaria, they've, they've, they're traveling from the north. They're traveling from Galilee, um, around where they normally did work at Capernaum and so forth. They're going to go to Jerusalem. You have to go through Samaria in order to, to get there. And they hit this village along the way. The people reject him there because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That could mean one of two things. It could be a reference to the age-old fight between Samaritans and Jews, Uh, Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Judah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, capital of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they were at war constantly with each other throughout much of their history, Uh, so they still hate each other. So it could be a reference to that. They realize he's on his way to Jerusalem, so he's one of those Jews, we want nothing to do with him. Or it could be a reference to God's plan, that his, his journey has begun. He's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die, and so there's, God is going to bring a rejection here so that Jesus isn't just swarmed by people and has to stay there for, for a long period of time ministering to them, but instead, as they reject him, he can just move along, and the, the travel journey continues. When the sons of thunder, James and John, Boanerges, when they see this, they want to call down fire on these people from heaven. And Jesus rebukes them. So this is like Elijah wanting to see the great works of God. Look, Jezebel wants me dead. Strike her down, God. He doesn't quite say it that that boldly, but this is James and John position as well. They want God to work in such miraculous power-showing ways as he sets up an earthly kingdom. And Jesus rebukes them. This is not why he's come. In fact, he's going to Jerusalem to die for these very people they want to see get killed. He's going to die for them, to save them from their own rebellion. The second paragraph is tricky, uh, to say the least. Many commentators have really wrestled with this over the years. Um, 
So in short, because again, I know I'm out of time, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus points to the idea that he's homeless. And really, what do we know about where he's going? He's going to die. Is this man willing to do that? Or is he looking for greatness because, again, they think the Messiah will set up an earthly kingdom? The second guy wants to go and bury his father. This could be a situation where the dad has already died. His funeral is supposed to happen within a day. It could be that he's seeking familial ties, that he has this, uh, his father is his authority and he has to listen to his father, and so he has to wait for his father to die, and then he's free of that fam- familial tie and can serve Jesus. We don't know for sure. Uh, it's not said. Jesus' response just seems rude. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. The third guy uh, says he wants to simply turn and, and say goodbye to those at his house before he follows Jesus. And Jesus, again, with a shocking response to that man. This is, I think, the connection people will try to make again with the Old Testament text that Elijah, Elisha asks Elijah for this ability to go home first, and Elijah grants it. Jesus doesn't which some take to say that Jesus is greater, his ministry is greater than Elijah's ministry. But again, the, the main focus is, is on what God is doing. Essentially, look at this paragraph this way. Um, as a follower of Jesus, we don't know where the path will go, but he does. And so we don't get to say to Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me do this. Here, here's my conditions to follow you. It's not about you. It's about his kingdom, and his kingdom is going to move forward with or without you. His kingdom is going to move forward with or without me. And so Jesus basically, it's like the picture, I guess, of a moving train. The train's going. Um, You're either on it or you're not. The kingdom of God is going to do what the kingdom of God is going to do because Jesus is its king. So you could read this paragraph as a really crushing law, but I think instead... Verse 62 is helpful. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Try, try this with mowing your yard since most of us don't work with plows. As you mow your grass, uh, keep mowing as you turn around and look behind you for a little while. And then see if you've mowed in a straight line. The trouble here is, is the priority. And again, trying to tell Jesus we're going to have these other priorities in our life. Jesus is our priority. Jesus is it. He is our treasure. He is our joy. He is our focus. He is our life. He is our family. And he takes that first, that first place. And we are so thankful that that's his work, that he is the one that calls us into his kingdom. He is the one that has made us his family. He is the one who has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil because he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem.